Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to be with you guys today. And uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been going through a series in the Gospels. Uh, John mentioned that we are reading through the Gospels at the same time. Um, and uh, the two haven't always lined up, but um, we're, we're tracking with the life of Jesus. And uh, what we've been doing on Sundays, at least, is uh, as we've been going through uh, primarily the Gospel of John, next week we're going to switch things up a little bit. Uh, but we, we've been looking at the life of Jesus, and we've been specifically asking the question, what does it look like for Jesus uh, to, to demonstrate what it looks like for God to be present and at work in the lives of people? Uh, one of the things that you will realize about Jesus if you read through the Gospels is that uh, one of the things that sets him apart is that he is the most present individual who has ever lived. He is constantly living in the moment. He is attuned to the people around him. He's responding the way that he hears his heavenly Father uh, speak to him and through him. And so, so he is a, a, a demonstration. If you want to know what it looks like for God to be present and at work in your life uh, or in this world, you look at Jesus to find the answer to that. And, and uh, 2020 for us is a year where we are uh, trying to discern what it looks like to be people uh, who pursue the presence of Jesus in all things, that know what it looks like to, to, uh, to, to hear His voice, to, to move as He speaks. And so we've been reading through the Gospels to, uh, to give us sort of example after example of how Jesus uh, leads us in that way. So, so we're going to be doing that again this morning. And uh, like many of the stories that we've looked at, this one is also going to be pretty familiar to you. And uh, sometimes it's the familiarity of these stories that kind of puts blinders on <laughs> uh, what God's actually doing in them. We've seen this a number of times as we've looked through some of these things, and that's going to be the case again today. And so... I just I want to invite you, just even as we read through, keep an open mind about what you see Jesus doing and why He's doing what He's doing. Okay? So, uh, as I mentioned, John 4 is where we're going to be found. And we're going to read a pretty long section of this because it's a long story uh, from verse 4 to verse 42. Um, I don't have the page number in the Bibles that you have. Does somebody have that? 741. Thank you. Thanks, Ruth. Um, and this is what God's Word says. Now he had to go through Samaria, speaking of Jesus. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? 
Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship that that you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and the worshipers and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then, the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving the water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him some food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jump down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because you said, now, he, now we have heard, just because of what you said, now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Ah, oh, man, so much here. Um, it'd be easy to try to break this down into multiple sermons, but I wanted you to get kind of the overall picture because you have here uh, this interaction between Jesus and a woman um, that is shocking in every way. And this is the good news that we proclaim this morning, that regardless of how the world has mislabeled and mistreated you, Jesus sees the real you. Regardless of how the world has disappointed you, Jesus offers living water, the living water of his presence. And he has come to give you a new identity full of hope 
and boldness to declare who he is. Um, Is there anything more annoying slash devastating than when you get mislabeled? Uh, You know, like, has anybody ever, like, come to a conclusion about you that you know is not true, and you're like, oh, that just irks me that somebody has come to that conclusion about me. Um, one of the trivial ones for me is, uh, and I think this happens anytime you, you move away from sort of your culture of origin, and not that I'm not an American or anything, but I come from uh, Massachusetts and sort of the western side of the state. And usually when people hear that I'm from Massachusetts, they respond um, with a question. And, and there are funny and not so funny ways to ask that question, but one of the funnier ways to ask that question is, why do you pronounce all your R's? Because in their minds, people from Massachusetts say car and park and, you know, drive the car to the park and go, you know, it's, it, because that's the way people from Massachusetts talk. And I have to correct them and go, no, I'm actually from three hours west of Boston. And oh, by the way, I've been to Boston more than probably any other city and not everybody talks that way there. <laughs> it's a caricature. And some people are closer to that caricature than others, but as somebody who's from that area, go, ooh, that's not who we are, you know? Have you ever been mislabeled? One of the most culturally taboo ones um, is to mislabel a woman pregnant when she's not pregnant, you know? You see, you, you like, oh, you know, like that just, you know, so like I just pray that God would give me some kind of super special power to like never do that ever, you know, because I just don't, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm uncomfortable and they're uncomfortable. Um, nobody likes to be mislabeled. And when you are mislabeled, it can range from annoying to devastating. Now, here, here's the truth about labels. The less that you know about someone, the more likely you are to mislabel them. The less you've actually dug into their, their, who they are, heard their story, actually physically know them, the more likely you are, it's not inevitable, but the more likely you are to apply a label to them. And the, the more different they are from you and the less you know about them, the more likely your label for them is likely to be wrong. And now here's the interesting thing about Jesus and his disciples. It seems like one of the things that Jesus is always needing to do with his disciples is to call into question how they have mislabeled people. Right? So they come to a blind man and the disciples go, who sinned? Like, was it him or was it his parents? Because the label that they have, the category for this person is sinner. And Jesus has to go, no, it's neither one. He's blind so that the glory of God may be shown through him and he heals the man. Think of uh, the children who come and are clamoring to get close to Jesus and the disciples have a label for them, which is distraction. And they're trying to shoo him away and Jesus goes, no, 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 that label does not apply. They are the ones who, who are most readily available to the kingdom of God in their midst. You need to become like them. Think, I mean, this keeps happening, right? Over and over again. It happens to Peter, even in the book of Acts, where he sees uh, Cornelius and, and these Greeks come to faith, and he's like, 
how can this be? They haven't been circumcised. And Jesus comes to Peter in a dream and says, don't you call unclean what I have declared as clean. Your label is wrong. And in a big way, that's kind of what's happening here, isn't it? That, that Jesus is having this interaction with the Samaritan woman and the disciples are perplexed. It says when they, when they come back in verse 27, uh, they return and they are surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one will say, what do you want, woman? Or why are you talking with her? It's almost like they're, they're, they're too shocked to actually get the words out. They're too afraid that Jesus is going to like slap their wrist, you know. So why are they surprised? They're surprised because they have in their minds fixed labels, categories for this woman, and Jesus is blowing past every single one of them. So what are some of those labels? She's first. What's her race, first of all? A Samaritan. If you know anything about Jews and Samaritans, you know that they did not get along, and that's putting it lightly. They were enemies to one another, and Jews considered Samaritans to be half-breeds and disregarded them as such. Now, so that's one label. Here's another one. She was unclean. Because she's a Samaritan, and because she's a half-breed, and because she doesn't uh, travel down to Jerusalem for the feasts and the festivals to get cleaned in their sort of understanding of how God makes you ritually pure, she is unclean. And Jesus, having no ability to, to, to draw water Himself, is drinking from this woman's jar. Which a Jew would never do. And, so, and she's a woman. And if you were a man, a man in that day, you did not initiate conversations with women. And they come back, and Jesus, who's a rabbi, is having a theological debate with a Samaritan unclean woman. I don't know if you know anything about rabbis, but to engage in a theological conversation with someone is the highest form of respect you can pay someone. Now here's the shocking thing. Um, The disciples aren't the only ones who've mislabeled this woman. We've done it too. Now here's what I mean by that. Uh, what kind of woman do we presume, presume this Samaritan is? Tell me about her. Is she a woman of upstanding moral character? No. Okay, so what, what is she? Loose. That's one way to put it. Never thought you'd hear that word in church, did you? <laughs> okay. Yeah, she seems to not know how to pick the right husband. She's promiscuous. Um, right? She, she's a woman of questionable moral character. She is this, the town seductress, or at least that's the narrative. Why do we assume this about her? 
Okay, so she's going to the well in isolation. All the other women in the town would go in the morning or at night. And she comes at noon. All right, we'll come back to that. What else? She's had five husbands. And now she's shacked up with somebody out of wedlock. And so, I mean, does it, it seems like an open, shut case, right? We know exactly what kind of woman this is. Do we? Is this a label that we've created because we don't know her? Let's look at the, let's look at the details of her life again. Do you realize that women in the first century in ancient Israel have absolutely no right to divorce their husbands? Zero. Which means that all five of her husbands have either left her or died. Do you realize that it that marital unfaithfulness, especially for a woman, was punishable by death? I mean, just go and look at John 8 when Jesus finds a woman who is caught in adultery and see what her situation looks like. So it, and that means that it is far more likely that the husbands that she has or has had have cheated on her rather than her on them. Do you realize that for her to be with a man who is not her husband means that this man is using her as a concubine? That because she has been abandoned through death or divorce five times over, she has absolutely no inheritance and her only option is to live with someone who will take her in because otherwise she will be homeless. That this man is, in a sense, using her to get what he physically wants without the need to share his inheritance with her. She's a slave. Are you getting a different picture of this woman? She is not in her current situation of isolation and hopelessness because she's been promiscuous. She is in the state that she's in because she has been the victim of abuse, abandonment, racism, and poverty. That kind of changes the narrative, doesn't it? When you know that about her? Do you see why labels can be so devastating? Our presumptions about this woman actually reveal a larger issue that we have. Again, I said this before, that the less that we know about someone, the more likely we are to mislabel them. We've labeled this woman promiscuous, but Jesus, even though He reveals something about the fact that she's had five husbands, He never calls out, it, it calls out her situation as sin. He never calls her to repent or to change her ways like He does for the woman in John 8. Why wouldn't he do that? Because that's not been her story. We live in a world that encourages us 
to make presumptions about people without the messiness of moving close enough to actually get to know who they are. And so we assume their motives, we assume their sin, we assume their dreams, we assume that we know what they're like. I just We have to ask ourselves then, what groups of people are we prone to mislabeling? Where have we presumed to see someone without actually needing to know them? Folks, this is maybe the number one issue of our day. That we live in a world that allows you to have myopic conclusions about all sorts of people without ever having to encounter one of them to hear their story. And I just... We have to ask ourselves, how have I fallen into this trap? How have I presumed to know without getting to know? Have I presumed to in such a way where I think that every person who's seeking asylum to the U.S. is coming here for nefarious reasons, but I've never actually met an immigrant? Do I presume to know... That every woman who chooses to have, abort- have an abortion has done so for selfish reasons. But I've never actually sat with a woman who's had to make that gut-wrenching decision for herself. Do I presume to know that African Americans who say black lives matter automatically mean that blue lives don't? But I've never sat with one to find out why they're so afraid. I want to let us off the hook a little bit because the fact that we have these labels is not our doing. We didn't choose the lenses that we look at the world through. But let me tell you, it is our responsibility to ask the question, are the lenses I currently have the lenses that Jesus has for the world? Or am I presuming to have sight where, where my sight is really distorted? This became apparent to me. I was talking with a a pastor friend of mine, a dear friend. It was shortly after um, the the horrendous stabbing that happened at the Shamrock Deli. We were praying for the family and and, um, just, you know, grieved by uh, the situation that they've had to go through. And and, um, I was talking to this friend of mine and he in a moment of honesty, said, you know, I, I've been praying for the family, I've been praying for all this, but do you know what Like my gut reaction was when it happened? Is I, I, I blurted out loud, Lord, I hope it's not a black man that did it. I was like, why? Like, why would... I mean, something's going on there, but like, why would you say that? He said, well, for instance, you're wearing a hoodie. I happen to have a hoodie on. He said, if I go into a convenience store wearing what you're wearing after something like this has happened, there will be at least five people in that convenience store that will look at me as though I'm about to rob the place. This pastor friend of mine just happens to be black. And I just teared up. I was like, I'm sorry. 
I have no idea what it's like to walk in those shoes. See, if, if we allow these presumptions to continue, if we don't move close enough to people who are unlike us to know their story, to hear their pain, to understand what it's like in their shoes, then there's no way to break those labels. See, when it said at the very beginning that Jesus had to go through Samaria, geographically, that's an untrue statement. He could have gone around. He could have taken the way that all good Jews take, which is to avoid Samaria. You know? You get on Route 30 and you get over the Ben Franklin Bridge before going through Camden. And Jesus goes, no, I've got to go through Camden. That's the way I need to go. And Because you, you can't break labels from Jerusalem. You have to go, you have to walk through Samaria. Have we done that? The good news is that Jesus does do that. Jesus is not like us. He doesn't stand at a distance and presume to understand. He moves in close enough to see who we really are. Regardless of how the world has mislabeled or mistreated you, Jesus sees the real you. He moves in close. See, once you see this, uh, the way that Jesus sees this story, when, and what he sees when he looks to the Samaritan woman, it begins to change everything about the way that you read this story. You know, for example, um, Jesus, you know, he brings up the whole husband thing. Go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have any. And he says, you're right, you don't have one. And then the very next thing she says is what? Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Now, if you think that she's promiscuous, then you automatically think that she's throwing up smoke screens, right? She's trying to change the subject. But if you read through the book of John, here's what you find out. Every time he mentions that somebody has been given the ability to see anything, that person is on to the truth. That person is pressing in. They're not pulling back. And I contrast that to Nicodemus. Remember we said this last week? Nicodemus, a Pharisee, he's supposed to get it. He's supposed to have spiritual sight. When does he come to Jesus? In the middle of the night, right? Which, and what did that symbolize? That he's in a spiritual darkness. He can't see who Jesus is revealing himself to. Now you contrast that with this story, and when does John say that this person comes to see Jesus? As when the sun's at its highest... And that's no accident. This woman has an ability to see Jesus for who He is. Because she knows that she's been seen by Jesus. And that's good news to her. She sees that He's a prophet. What's a prophet? A prophet is someone who reveals God's heart. Who, especially for those who are disenfranchised. Someone who speaks up on behalf of the poor. Someone who stands up to oppression. This woman is not calling Jesus a prophet because she feels condemned. She's calling Him a prophet because for the first time in her life, she feels understood. 
This man sees who I am and what I've been through. And now I see him. This is more than just a thirsty Jewish man. Jesus has walked in our shoes. You, you think that nobody understands what it's like to walk in your shoes? This story is telling us Jesus does. It's the first person that's ever come to this Samaritan and knows what it's like to be her. And if he, as a Jewish rabbi, knows what it's like to be this isolated Samaritan poor woman, he he knows what it's like to walk in your shoes too. And you can trust him. And she does. That's the great news. She, she does trust him because she starts to open up. And she, she drops like the most loaded question that she can figure out. To add, Like, if you're a Samaritan, you don't bring up religion and politics. And she does both in one question. Because <laughs> she says to him, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You realize that's the, like, the central issue that's divided Samaritans and Jews, is where can God be found? And she presents this question to a Jewish rabbi, which means she is saying, in a sense, I trust you with the answer. Listen, if she can bring her deepest question to Jesus, so can you. You know, the one that you won't even speak to your spouse because you're, you're too ashamed to ask it? Jesus is a safe place to ask that question. And I love his response, right? I mean, he, he says, Woman, believe me, there's a time coming when, when, we, when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Verse 23, a time is coming when, and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. You see what Jesus is doing? He's going throw out the categories. It's not about Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion anymore. It's not about the political feud between who's in and who's out. That's not the kind of worshipers. The Father does not seek the kind of worshipers that put everybody in a box. He seeks the kind of worshipers that can come to Him in spirit and in truth. By the power of His Spirit who empowers absolutely everyone from the, from the loftiest Jew in Jerusalem to the lowest Samaritan here. Everyone has access to the Father through Me. All you have to do is come by the Spirit and in truth. Come as you really are. The great news is this woman's already done that. She's totally exposed. And she's got a leg up on the rest of us, frankly. So then the woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. I love this. It's almost like she's going, all right, God is going to be everywhere. Everyone's going to have access to him, including me. Like, this seems too good to be true. How could this possibly be true? And then Jesus declares to her, in the very first I am statement in the book of John, 
the one who's speaking to you, I am he. Jesus says, I am, I am the water of life who moves towards you and fills broken vessels like you. See, um, if you're reading through the book of John, the number seven is a really important number. Right? There are seven signs that Jesus performs. There are seven I am statements. And it's all hearkening back to, to John 1 when it says, in the beginning was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a, a restating of the Genesis, the creation account. How many days were in Genesis? Seven. Let's think about her story then a little bit. How many husbands has she had? Who's she now living with? One. Jesus is number seven. Jesus is the seventh man of her life. And I, Mandy, has, Mandy was reading through this. He goes, is, that just seems too like crazy to be true. You know? I'm like, I don't know, but I, it is. What he's saying, in a sense, at least John is saying, that Jesus is the one man, the one man, who will not disappoint or take advantage of her like every other man has done. That he is the one who has come into her life, who will never leave her and never forsake her. He will bring her into his home and he will share the full inheritance with her. That he will, in fact, lay his life down as a never-ending husband to make his bride as beautiful as she was intended to be. And this is who Jesus is, family. That he is the seventh and final man in your life who knows how you've been disappointed. He knows the other wells that you've gone to. He knows the other men that you've run to. He knows that you've been disappointed by love and by family and by the church and by your career and by your vacation plans. He knows that you've been devastated maybe through racism and poverty and sexism or even abuse. He knows all of those things. Every hurt and every sorrow. And he says to you, I am what all of those people could never have been for you. I am a spring of life flowing from the inside. Do you see me? Because I see you, he says. The good news is that regardless of how you've been mislabeled or mistreated. Jesus sees the real you. Regardless of how the world has disappointed or devastated you, Jesus offers you the living water of His presence. And He's ready to give you a new identity. It's full of hope and boldness so that you might declare Him. I love how this story ends too. Um, this woman who comes to Jesus in isolation and she's bearing this burden, right, of needing to get water day after day after day. And the, the jars that she's carrying sort of symbolize the fact that she is a woman of heavy burden. But then it says at the very end of the story in verse 28, then what does she do? Leaving her jars. Leaving her water jar the woman went back to town and said to people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? 
And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Verse 39 says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She leaves it behind. She leaves behind her old identity, her old burdens, so that she can embrace this new identity of being a witness of Jesus. And she is, in a sense, received back into her community again. She's made whole. And she becomes the first missionary to the non-Jewish world. She's so amazing, in fact, that Jesus has to point out to his disciples who still don't get it how amazing the harvest is that she is producing because of her faith in him. And she's like, don't you guys get it? Like, be like her. (laughs) She receives a new identity. See, I think there's a tendency when you get mislabeled by the world to go looking for other labels that you think will suit you. And so you... In a sense, I mean, you sort of go from well to well to well or, or water jar to water jar. But every single one, it just produces the same burdens and you don't feel like it fits you. And I just want to remind us not to go looking for a label apart from Jesus. You can leave every other one behind. It's not that she doesn't, she's not still a Samaritan, but her Samaritanness no longer defines who she is. She is now, the, in a sense, the bride of Jesus and a witness to his kingdom. And there's nothing that's going to stop her from living out that new identity. And, and I think that's, that's what happens when mislabeled people are brought into the light of Jesus' presence. They become, many times, the most powerful witnesses of the gospel. Because when, when you have found your permanent identity in the one who sees and accepts you, then you have a security that you've never dreamed of before. And, and in a sense, you're, you're able to see everyone else's false securities. You're able to see other mislabeled people and go, that's not who you really are. And that's the work of an evangelist. That's the work of someone who shares the gospel. Is in a sense to go through life and to, to see every single person who comes into your life, especially those who have been mislabeled by the world, and say, God sees you as someone different. That is not who you really are. Let me share what it's like to be known and loved by the King. Come, see a man who's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Could could this be the one that you've been waiting for? In a sense, she had been looking her whole life for him, but at the same time, it turns out that Jesus was looking for her. Could this be the one you've been looking for too? Now, as we get ready to respond, I just want to um, pose a couple questions to you that you might want to consider or bring before God. Uh, the first is a question I already asked, which was, um, where are you prone to labeling other people? 
what groups of people or 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 persons have you maybe come to conclusions about, but you don't really know their story? I was praying this morning about this, and um, I realized there is a, a neighbor in my on my street. It's a Chinese family, single mom, two boys who are in their twenties, and everybody like has a has a conclusion about them. Because they don't take care of the outside of the house, they don't mow the lawn, they don't. They, the the deck in the back is in misrepair, and everybody sort of under their breath like jokes about the fact that the mom will go out with a pair of scissors and clip the grass. And I, I just I was so convicted this morning because I'm like I've chuckled about that too, and I don't know their story, and that's that can't stand. I, I think God's calling me to walk across the street and to reintroduce myself again and to apologize for not taking the time to get to know them. I know every other person on my street. I don't know them. And it's not their fault. It's mine. Where have you been prone to labeling others? Another question, where, where do you feel like you've been mislabeled by the world? And are you looking to the world to resolve that issue for you? There is no resolution from the world. That resolution can only come through Jesus. So bring it before Him. Ask Him for a new identity. Ask Him to remind you of who you really are because only He knows. Another question you might ask is, where do you feel the weight of disappointment in your life? What are the jars or the wells that you've been going to And maybe you need to come to Jesus again this morning and ask Him to show you how He's the real source of life. He's the real source of security that you can't find elsewhere. He's here. He's among His people today and He wants to meet with you this morning. So let's go to His presence. Father, we thank You that regardless of the conclusions that other people have come about when they think of us, that You know the truth. You understand what it's like to walk in our shoes. You are the one who formed us in our mother's womb. You... You know us deeply and intimately and You love us with an infinite love. It doesn't seem possible, but it's true. Lord, help us to believe that again. Help us to receive it again. God, convict us of the ways that we've mislabeled others and lead us in repentance that we might have a change of mind and heart not just before you but that would work itself out in the way that we live that we would be people that are never content with staying away from others allowing our our presumptions to rule without getting to know them but holy spirit may you convict us and change us in the kind of people that move close to others, 
that don't come to conclusions until we hear the full story. God, thank You that no matter how isolated or alone we feel, You are here. Help us to be attuned to Your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jay.